in Galatians chapter 3. In the book of Galatians, as we have been discussing, Paul wrote this, probably his first letter, to the churches in the region of Galatia, which is in Asia Minor. They had just become, the, the churches, they become new Christians, a lot of Gentiles, a few Jews, a lot of Gentile believers, few Jewish believers. And quickly, a group had come of Jews and Jewish believers, Paul questions whether they're not really believers, had come and said, you know, grace, you know, faith is fine, but you need to add to Jesus, you need to add the law, circumcision, ceremonial law. This is a huge, huge deal. The Gentile believers had to become Jewish. They were adding to the, uh, the gospel. And in addition, uh, they questioned the authority that Paul had uh, to, uh, to teach or preach. And so Paul writes this letter where he defends his authority and he clarifies the gospel. In the third chapter last week, which began to see a strong doctrinal emphasis, in the first 14 verses, Paul emphasized the authenticity of faith, your experience in salvation. It's a reminder that you were saved by faith, not by the law of works. And then more importantly, he emphasizes the authority of faith, the evidence that comes from Scripture. Now in verses 15 through 29 in the chapter, he deals with that authority, and he deals particularly in the relationship in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now remember, they didn't have a New Testament. So what their Scriptures was the Old Testament. So they deal in the relationship between a promise made to Abraham and the law which was given to Moses. And we'll go through that. And the, the issue is based on what is called basically a covenant. Covenants are agreements, they're spiritual agreements. You find them in the old, you find them in the new. Um, you know, I'm not a huge guy that worries about how many covenants there are. You know, obviously the major covenants in the Old Testament, there was one with Abraham, and then there was the one of the law with the people of Israel, and then there is the new covenant in Christ, which is foretold in the old covenant, particularly in Jeremiah. Uh, you know, there are others as God had a covenant with Noah, but th those are the main ones. And so the focus now is on the, the promise, the covenant, which is called a promise made with Abraham. So we pick up um, in verse 15, and what we have here then uh, is him saying, brethren, now he's speaking in, you know, earlier he had been pretty tough on him in chapter one, call him, um, you know, if you add to the gospel, you're condemned. Here he says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified or declared, it, one is set aside or adds conditions to it. No one does that. So once the covenant has been established and the parameters are established, no one adds to it. If you just think, you know, in our terms of contracts, people have a contract. Once you sign the contract, you just don't add to it. Now, I mean, technically, I know legally you can. You can go back and do things, and I get that. But no one just arbitrarily adds to that. Well, these covenants made between God and people, no one adds to. They're set. So, in verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So, He's talking about a promise. God made a promise. The covenant with Abraham is an interesting covenant because God promises, says things. If you go back, especially in Genesis 12 and, and in Genesis 15, God says, I will, I will, I will. God is taking obligations upon himself. Abraham has no obligation. If you want to say he has one, it's just to trust God. But I mean, faith it's not in the realm of obligation. It's not in the realm of works. It's not in the realm of deeds. In the covenant with Moses, we'll see in a minute, 
there are works, there are laws, there are requirements of things you must accomplish or not accomplish. With Abraham, it was a promise. God is making a promise to Abraham. That promise is unconditional. The promise is not that I will make the great nation of Israel, which some people think it is. The promise is all the world will be blessed through you. That is the ultimate unconditional promise. But he begins to talk about and use the word seeds, seed I should say. He says, and to his seed, Paul references it in the singular. Now, this word seed is, is also understood as descendant or descendance. Verse 16 says, he does not say into seeds, plural, as referring to many, but to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So here is, here's a little difficulty. There are numerous places in the Old Testament you see, uh, in Genesis, where you see uh, the reference to this. Uh, you see it in um, Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 13, um, what is it, 13, 15, and 17. Uh, and, you know, you see it in chapter uh, 24, verse 7. And the word descendants is used in the plural. The word seed is singular, but it's used collectively. Uh, we, we see other words like that. So the word deer, um, you know, you know, is a singular, but sometimes it's used collectively. You know, uh, there, are, there are other words in English, we get that. So what Paul is saying is, it is talking about the word seed in the Hebrew, descendant. It's a singular, it's used collectively. It may be translated descendants. But Paul is saying the understanding of it all is one in particular, and that is Christ. So what Paul, Paul's argument is, there was a promise made to Abraham. And that through his seed, one in particular, uh, you can translate it descendants, but it's not the multiple descendants, it's one of the many. There is one that the promise is fulfilled through. He'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, in Christ. So it's a very important thing to, to understand in Paul's argument. There is a promise with no obligation to Abraham. And that promise, God takes obligations upon himself. And he makes it to your seed, that is Christ. Verse 17 is this. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So he says the law came later. Now, the number 430 is a little tricky because from the time of Genesis 12 till the actual giving of the covenant at Sinai is more than 430 years. Most, in uh, lots of arguments, it really doesn't matter. It's a long period of time. The, the basic idea seems to be this. During the time that Israel was in captivity, 400 plus years, okay, that, that's kind of the, that's, that's the time frame. In other words, when Israel, when, when, when Jacob, there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Jacob's descendants went to Egypt, that ended the period of the patriarchs, that ended the influence of Abraham, that ended the Abraham era, not the promise, the era. 400 plus years in captivity, then Moses' era began in the era of the law. So basically what is being said is, during that time between the eras, the time between the periods, the time between those two activities. During that time, the covenant made to Abraham was not nullified. And so when the law came, it doesn't do that. Now, verse 18 says this, if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, 
that God has granted to Abraham by means of a promise. So here's the thing. The law then is the covenant made to the people of Israel through Moses, with Moses at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and all the other commandments. There's more than ten. There's ten commandments, but there's a bunch of more rules, 600 plus rules. That law was for the people of Israel after they left Egypt. After they left Egypt, they were God's people. They didn't know how to live as God's people. They had spent 400 plus years as slaves. Before that, Abraham lived by faith. We'll see some more about faith in a minute. Abraham and his descendants just trusted God. There wasn't a set of rules to follow. If you look in the time of Abraham, there were no rules. There were no commandments. There were, it was just, trust me, don't worship foreign gods, trust me, that's it. I mean, worship, not worshiping foreign gods was always understood, but just worship, worship me. So when the people of Israel left, they were leaving a religious area of the Egyptians which had all different gods and goddesses and rules and regulations. How do you function? They're going to go into a land that had been inhabited by pagan Canaanites, the most despicable of all religious people. They needed to know how does God people live. So the law was given to help them understand how do the people of God live. But the law did something else. When the law came, as we're about to see, it also demonstrated what sin was. And this becomes the issue. So the upfront argument is simply this. The promise made to Abraham had no law. When the law came, it didn't nullify the promise. The promise was God saying, I will, I will, I will. The law was God saying, you will, you will, you won't, you won't, you will, you won't, 613 times. So, you have that. So, verse 18 says, God has granted to Abraham the inheritance based on the law is no longer based on a promise. You can't have it both ways. God made a promise to Abraham, so it can't be both. The descendants of Abraham can't live both by a promise and by the law. The promise to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus. You can't live both ways. And this is what they were being told by the Jewish so-called believers to the people uh, in Galatia, in that region. They were being told, you have Christ. That's the fulfillment of the promise. But you got to add the law to it. And Paul says, you can't do that. So we come down to verse 1. Why the law then? Here's the question. What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So there's three things being said. Why the law? Well, the first thing is this. It was added because of transgressions or sins. Now, what does that mean? It was added because of sins. Does the law come because sin existed and the law had to deal with it? Or did the law come to show them what sin was? And the answer is yes. It does both. The law show, exposes sin. It exposes the heart. So let's look at Ten Commandments. God says, there are no other gods besides me. You were in a land of worshiping multiple gods. You go into another land when they worship multiple gods. Let me tell you, there is only one God. You will have no other God. Don't make any idols because every other religion in the world had idols. Don't make any idols. Thirdly, do not make my name common. And fourth, 
honor the day of worship, the Sabbath, which I give to you. He said, that's what you do. And then he said, oh, by the way, quit killing people. Quit cheating on your spouses. Quit bearing false witness against your neighbor. Not just lying. I mean, lying's always bad. But we have this idea that that commandment is about simply little lies you may tell. It's about bearing a false witness against your neighbor and in so doing so to slander your neighbor. Don't steal stuff that doesn't belong to you. Don't covet all that stuff. He said, this is, so he's exposing what sin is. These are sins. And then he's also suppressing them because this is what they were doing. And now, now you know. They could have said, I had no idea. Murder was a sin. Who'd have thought? Well, now you know. I had no idea that making an idol out of a piece of wood to express worship in a God that I made up in my mind would be a sin. Well, now you know. It's pointed out to you. And so here are these Ten Commandments and a whole bunch more, over 600, that deal with all sorts of little, crazy, nuanced things. I mean, they were just like today. They thought of everything. It's all covered. Everything's covered. Do this, don't do that. Why? To expose, this is what sin is, and to suppress it, don't do it. So, that's what the law does. Now, the second thing it says, I'm going to went through this. That it was ordained or set aside through angels by the agencies of a mediator. A mediator was Moses, given to Moses by angels. Where do the angels give Moses the law? Well, we don't have that. We don't have to have it for it not to be true. Paul didn't make that stuff up. There are other places where we see the angelic works with with, uh, with Moses. Remember this also. The word angel speaks of a messenger. In all throughout the Old Testament, especially with Abraham and Moses. The angel of the Lord, which in itself is the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord working through an angel, a mediator to Moses. So that's the same. It was, saying it was just given. It was given to Moses by someone. And then the third thing he said, that's going to be important in a minute. And the third thing he says, until the seed, which is Jesus, would come to whom the promise would have been made. In other words, the law was only temporary. The law was given until something. Until what? Until Jesus. Don't need the law no more. Got Jesus. Doesn't mean it's okay to do all those things. But that's not what guides us. The law doesn't guide us. The Holy Spirit of God guides us through faith in Jesus. Jesus guides us now. So we have that. And he says, Now a mediator is not, which was what Moses was, is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. This is a really confusing person, English, Greek, whatever language. But it really means this. There was a mediator, Moses, between, in the covenant that was made between God and Israel. But between Abraham, there was no covenant. It was just God. God said, hey, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do for you. But to the people of Israel, God spoke through Moses. So there's a big, so the the old, the promise of Abraham is superior so then he asked this question, is the law contrary to the promise of God? So is the law in contradiction to the promise of God? No. He says, may it never be. That's emphatic. He's made that in no possible way. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So what he's saying is this. If you could have a law that could give you life, eternal life, righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So he's saying it's, what he's saying is the law wasn't opposite the promise. He's saying... Theoretically, 
You could give laws, and if you follow the laws, you would, you would follow them perfectly. You would have a righteous life. Now, it's not happened. It didn't happen, but the law itself is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with the law because what does the law do? It reveals what God expects. The Old Testament law told the people of Israel, this is what God expects. Do this, don't do that. That's what it does. There's nothing wrong with the law, but what the law does not do is save you because you don't keep it. You can't keep it. Verse 22, but the scripture has shut up or enclosed or imprisoned everyone under sin. The scripture, remember, this is the Old Testament scripture. And what does the Old Testament scripture do? It reveals the law. It has shut up everyone under sin so that the result being the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. In other words, the law shows you that you are imprisoned. The result of that is that when Jesus comes to fulfill the promise, you have a way to escape the imprisonment. Not that the law puts you in, but that sin puts you in. Sin imprisons you. The law illustrates that. It demonstrates that. It's the law is the light that shows that you are captive to sin. The law is the light that shines on your rebellious nature against God. You created little idols out of wood and stone to represent the gods and goddesses you created in the figment of your imagination. The law shines a light and says that's rebellion against God. You are in prison not because of the law but because of the sin. Jesus comes and pulls you out of that in prison. So law points to that. But, verse 23, before faith came, before faith in Jesus came, now there was faith in the Old Testament, I get that. But now he's talking about faith that comes from Jesus. We were kept in custody, that is in prison, under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. So we're, we're in prison. Then verse 24, the law has become our tutor, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The word tutor comes from a Greek word that we get our term pedagogue from. Um, it does not mean teacher or schoolmaster. Some say, some say, will translate that way and say the law teaches. The word means master or custodian, or it's the idea of one in charge. And what it, what, you have to understand the context of that time. Young, young men back then, born especially into some degree of aristocracy or just any bit of wealth. One of the servants, not a free man, one of the servants at their father's household would be the pedagogue, would be the custodian. And would take that young boy and they would be in charge of that boy and they would make sure he got educated and trained and he could be tough on him. They would be hard on him. They could be cruel. They could punish him. They could discipline him. They would be tough, not out of anger, but to discipline that boy so that boy would grow up to be the type of man he needed to be in that culture. The law was that custodian that disciplined, that custodian that shaped and formed us in the midst of our sin, preparing us for what? Preparing us to be justified by faith. And here, Paul, once again, uses the term justified by faith so that it expresses that term of Habakkuk, saved by faith. And so here we have this first part here. Paul is saying, what does the law do? The law serves an important purpose. God gave us the law. The law comes 
from the Father to express his will, to show us our sin. In doing so, it points out that we are in prison, that we are in custody because of rebellious nature, because we can't keep the law. In addition, it also does something else. It has been useful to kind of discipline us, to corral us, to keep us where we need to be so that when Christ comes, faith then will release us from that prison we're in. The law still points to the promise to Christ, and we can never forget that. So Paul says, the law, why would you add the law to the promise? What Christ did is fulfill the promise made to Abraham. He shoots past the law. He bypasses the law. He goes straight to the promise. Why are you adding the law? You don't need the law. The reason the law came is because the promise hadn't been fulfilled yet. God made a promise to Abraham. We were sinning. We needed the law to show us that we were sinning. So the law came. Now Jesus released us from sin. Don't need the law anymore. Now when I say that, doesn't mean that that's not important for us to understand it and live without murder and all that stuff. But what the purpose is, the law no longer has the same function it had in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the law said to God's people, this is how you live. In the New Testament, Jesus tells me how we should live. That's the difference. So then we come to verse 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, the law. For we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, to all the feminists out there, the word son is a title. It's not meant to be gender specific and leave you out. It's a title. Back in that day, whether we liked it or not, whether it's good or not in our world, don't take our culture and impose it on them. The sons were the inheritors of the estate. So it was the idea of inheritance. You are all now adopted as sons through faith in Christ Jesus. It is through Christ, not the law. Now here's the cool part in verse 27. You were all baptized into Christ or unto Christ in Christ. You have to clothe yourself with Christ. The word baptized, to plunge under. The cool thing is it says you have been baptized into Jesus Christ. It, the, the little prepositions are important in Greek. Uh, they may be important in English, but evidently from uh, my grammar uh, in English literature, uh, it wasn't important to me. But when I came to Greek, it became really important. So the preposition ice means into, and it speaks of movement. So when you... Uh, came inside. We, sometimes we just translate it in. It's acceptable. You came into the auditorium. Technically, you didn't come in the auditorium. You came into the auditorium. You were outside of the auditorium. You passed through the doors and you were into the auditorium. So the word ice is movement from out to within. We're baptized into Jesus. Baptism doesn't save you. The baptism represents something. Paul just puts it this way. You have been clothed with Christ. When you're baptized, you go all the way in, and we pull you all the way back out. Some of you may have been sprinkled as children. I get that, uh, and, and, and that's some traditions. We understand that, but as Baptists, and, and, you know, the, the way we got the name Baptist was slanderous because we were people centuries ago who would rebaptize uh, folks who were in Catholic faith were baptized as infants. We'd rebaptize them. We were the rebaptizers. Hence, we just became Baptists. And, and, you know, so that's just who we are. We're the Baptist people. But, you know, we put you all the way under and we bring you all the way back out. That's what the word baptized means. You're clothed in the water. You're clothed in the water. You put on then the clothing of Jesus. 
There then, this is so quick. It speaks to the unity. There is the, no difference between Jew or Greek. So they're, 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 saying, they're saying to you Gentile believers, you Greek believers, you're not fully believers. They're making a distinction between you. Paul says, no, 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 no. We've all had one baptism in Christ. We've all been saved by the same Jesus. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek. He says there's no distinction between slave or free man because many of the believers were slaves and some were, I mean, were free. They all came together. There's no distinction. There's no distinction between male and female. You're all one in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that from a functional standpoint, there's not a difference between male and female or slave or free. He's not saying that. He's saying from the standpoint of the kingdom of God, we're one in Christ. And we are. It was, so back to all our feminists. It was Jesus in Christianity who elevated the dignity of women. No other religion in human history outside of Judaism and Christianity has ever elevated the role of women. Unless it's one of those, you know, strange cult like the Amazons where women kill all the men and eat their hearts or something. That doesn't really count. So if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, male and female, doesn't matter. You're all heirs according to the promise. The Jews would say to Jesus, we are descendants of Abraham. Jesus said, everyone who's a believer is a child of Abraham. All of us are descendants of Abraham. Every follower of Christ is a descendant of Abraham. Those doctrines and theologies that teach differently are at odds with the clear teaching of Jesus and Paul. The clear teaching of Jesus and Paul. We are the children of Abraham who are followers, regardless of male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. So Paul saying this, why in the world do you want to add all of that stuff in the law to the promise? Why would you want to take all those 613 rules and regulations, all the crazy dietary laws, all of the silly stuff that we failed at that the Jews failed to keep and just led us into slavery, why would you want to add that to faith? You don't. You don't. And that, by the way, was the distinguishing characteristic of the Reformation of 1517, led by Luther and then Calvin, that led to a dynamic revival of the Christian faith. You don't add anything to faith or grace, period. So we have a little bit of time, not much, but it's almost seven. you have any questions? Kids don't get out at 7.30 when they get out at 7, so we're pressed for time. Yeah. But we'll answer any questions, yes. Is it fair to say that when Jesus finally came, he started his ministry and stuff, people, the Jewish community, Yes, yeah, so when Jesus came, Jews believed that righteousness came first from being Jewish and secondly from the keeping of the law. But they were looking for a 
But they weren't looking for a Messiah like Jesus. They were looking for an earthly Messiah who would establish an earthly kingdom. Now there was one, I don't know, Pharisee or somebody, I think it was Simeon, that said that God promised that he wouldn't die until he saw. Okay. So in, in Luke, Simeon said that the Lord promised him that he would see the consolation of Israel. Consol and so that was Jesus. I don't know. I, I mean, just, that's just, he was just waiting for the coming of the Messiah. So other than that, he's a man of faith. So, I mean, I can't tell you what he was believing because it doesn't tell us what he was believing, but we should assume that he was a person of faith and had faith in Christ. Or, or faith in the coming of the Messiah. We should do that. That's all I can tell you on that part. Was there a faith just uh, looking for the Savior to come? No, his faith was in God. And he trusted God. He trusted God to send the Messiah. And he trusted that he would live to see the Messiah. But his faith was in God. He couldn't have faith in the Savior yet because the Savior hadn't come. Couldn't have faith in the Messiah. The Messiah hadn't come. But his faith was what we call anticipatory faith, just like David had, just like Moses had. It was faith in God in anticipation of what was to come. So they have what we call anticipatory faith that was fulfilled in Jesus. It's a little complicated at that point and convoluted. Don't want to go too far down that road because I'm getting hungry for dinner. Doug? <laughs> So the 613 laws that we talk about, the Pharisees took those, extrapolated those, and came up with the things that you talked, that you were saying that they came up with a bunch of, of like you couldn't, hard, you couldn't boil an egg, you couldn't peel an egg because peeling an egg was work, you couldn't pluck a hair because that was harvesting. That's beyond the 613. That becomes their interpretation of all of that found uh, in things like the Talmud, the Mishnah, and on and on and on and on. So that's where all that. So they added to all of those. So they took the 613 and they expanded them. It's the terminology that I would use. The Old Testament. Yes. They're all saved by faith. We just call it anticipatory faith. That's just our term. It wasn't their term. You had faith in God. You committed your life to God. Nothing to do with the rules. Nothing to do with what? The rules. No. Rules didn't save them. The rules demonstrated their salvation. Maybe. Because David didn't keep them all real well. Two of them he kind of messed up on. So they read faith, and that's faith saved them. So if you go to Hebrews 11, it tells us that. And gives us the examples of how their faith saved them. Hebrews 11. Good questions. What else? 